Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, May 2nd, 2021. We actually are on location today. We are on location. We are in uh, Hollywood. We're in L.A. No, we're in Venice. Santa Monica. Something like that. Venice, California. With the Borg Abuhoffs. The Borg Abuhoffs. Starring Pepper. Pepper. Pepper Borg Abuhoff. There she is. Also. Now she's quiet. Noelle Borg. Oh, there she is. And. Zeke. Okay, everybody's here. And. uh, Yeah, Pepper's really here. Yeah, Pepper's quite chatty now. Okay, we've been having a wonderful time. It's actually chilly here in uh, California compared to (coughs) New Hope, Pennsylvania. (laughs) And uh, we've been... uh, Well, we've been manning up. But the the fact of the matter is it's beautiful out here. We've had the chance to walk by the beach quite a bit. You know, they're right about the weather in L.A. There's something to that. Yeah. Well, the main thing is we're fully vaccinated and we finally got to come out and play with Pepper. And Pepper, you know, is benefiting from the guidance mightily. Yes. Uh, although she may have to take a hike in just a second because she feels the need to start singing right now. Right now. All right, we'll see how that goes. All right. Um, first of all, on a somber note, I lost a dear friend last week. Um, excuse me. Catherine Meyer, who was a friend of mine in high school. And uh, we were new girls together in ninth grade. And um, she uh, suffered for many years from multiple sclerosis, but uh, and uh, there is you know wonderful obituaries of her and uh, her life. She was uh, a really fun person, but I have to say my most uh, my clearest memory or dearest memories of Catherine involve. Uh, Myself being 100% wrong about Catherine. As I said, we were new girls in ninth grade together at Holton Arms in Maryland. And um, you know how it is when you're an adolescent, when you're a teenager, and you're kind of finding your way, and you sort of make uh, decisions about uh, everything. And uh, Catherine, um, you know, uh, to me seemed like a rather awkward sort of an you know ugly duckling to be honest uh, a little bit clumsy uh, she always seemed to be fumbling with her saddle shoes and uh I, you know I, she, she wasn't an acclaimed beauty she wasn't uh, a um she wasn't one of the smart kids you know and uh but she she was a friend and uh Always had lots of fun with her. She came from an interesting family. Her um, mother's uh, family um, were Cuban. And uh, her father's family was, uh, you know, um, what would you say? um, Old school uh, American uh, aristocracy kind of thing. He went to Yale. I think they met, uh, I think her parents met on like the uh, Queen Elizabeth or something, you know, some some kind of transatlantic cruise playing bridge, okay? So uh, Catherine and her family were nothing like anybody I had ever known before, 
but and I, as I said, she seemed, you know, she seemed she she was a nice person. I never uh, thought of her in stellar terms. She went to Bryn Mawr, and um, I didn't see her for a few years. And by the time I saw her again, she was actually um, co-owning a recording studio with a Russian disco star, Boris Midney. And he was famous for, have you ever heard that song, uh, Boogie Motion? Google it sometime. If you ever hear disco music, it was the, you know, song of disco. Pretty much, I don't know, started the craze. It was a big, it was in all the clubs. Anyway, she was... uh, you know, in my mind, suddenly hanging out with rock stars. Yeah, well, look, okay. you know, uh, Tam, I have a different impression of Catherine, just that to me, she seemed very glamorous. And the reason was because when we met her, when I met her, she had, she was on the cover, album cover. She was on, her big her photograph was on the cover of a record album, a big record album by this Whoa. Boris guy. All right, you're, well, let me explain that a little right, bit. So she gotta, did, she did, all right, I'll, I'll speed up. Anyway, she ends up being the most glamorous person I ever knew. Right. And the girl I thought was awkward. She turns out to be most glamorous, lovely, beautiful um, woman. And not only was she on the cover of one of his albums, she was on it in the nude, posing with a snake. Right, of course. With a snake. As one does. Um, She she was um, extremely... Um, religious devout. She came from a very Catholic family. I none of this was in my sort of stereotype of her. She broke all these barriers, and uh, it just shows you the, um, how stupid you can be yeah. as a teenager. Well, look, Catherine, <laughs> and Catherine, Catherine how, was very nice. She was a very gentle soul, uh, you know, notwithstanding the album and very cover. intelligent. Yeah. Right. One of those people, as I said, she was not proclaimed you were, you were completely as wrong. super smart in high school. Right. Yeah. I was wrong. Everybody in high school was wrong. Right. Okay, She was super smart, yeah. a great reader, a, um, a wonderful social person, kept, kept relationships from all the different schools she went to, with right. pe- knew people from all over the world, maybe the universe, um, and uh, um, really uh, brought a lot of uh, great highlights into my life. Um, so I, you know. So we're sorry to, sorry we, about that. We're sorry to lose Catherine. Um, but uh, I want to thank her for everything she brought to me. Okay, okay but moving right along here. All right, so we, uh, we want to take advantage of having uh, Zeke and uh, Noel here and perhaps not take advantage so much of having Pepper here at the moment. And so uh, the first thing they're going to do is enlighten us about uh, a word that is uh, new to us and perhaps even new to them. And that word, Zeke, is? Chugi. Chugi. So we heard about this last night. I have uh, some of my old friends, my old friends from high school, um, they texted me randomly being like, have you guys heard about this word? And it was a New York Times piece. What is Chugi? You know it when you see it. And my friend Aaron immediately was like, I feel attacked by this article. How do they keep coming up with new ways to attack us? And then my friend Maggie responded by saying, especially the part where they infer that home decor from Target is lame. That one hurt. 
Um, so this... <laughs> <laughs> this intrigued me enough, and I was delighted to read this article about um, how the youths have come up with a new word to trash millennials, which is kind of the what's happening right now in general. It's not cool to wear skinny jeans. It's not to ha- it's cool to have a side part. Um, and so now there's a word for this, which is chuggy. So if you're still rocking yeah, but something... But what does the word chuggy mean? Look, you'll know it. When you see it. Yeah. If you have to ask, <laughs> you're never going to know. It's a negative thing. I, for one, as a perpetual uh, champion of youth culture, of course know what Chuki means, but I couldn't possibly Okay, so I have the quote. You. It's not quite basic, quote-unquote, which can describe someone who is a conformist or perhaps generic in their taste and is not quite uncool. It's not embarrassing or even always negative. Chuggy can be used broadly to describe someone who is out of date or trying too hard. And while a lot of chuggy things are associated with millennial women, the term can be applied to anyone of any gender and any age. Yeah, okay. This sounds like bougie to me, if you're familiar with bougie. Is that a new word to you? It doesn't doesn't map exactly to bougie, I think. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is... But this this is your classic New York Times trend piece. Which is, uh, someone is doing something somewhere, and it's silly, and it's popular, but we don't know how popular. Maybe it's not popular. Anyway, it's very silly. Um, that like the thing, We have no idea how popular this term actually is. Uh, they interviewed the person who claims to have originated the term in, of course, Beverly Hills High School. Um, she describes how she started using it, and then her friends started using it, and then they went to different schools... And it is it is the you know story you would expect from somebody talking about what they said with their friends in Beverly Hills High School. It's not an interesting well, story, but the word got out there, and someone somewhere on TikTok is using yeah, it. But see, that's not the word. The big story to me is the idea that you guys have reached the age that younger people than yourselves are making fun of you guys for being old timers, for being staid for being traditional, for being conventional, and not being hip. Is that well, fair? Look, is that when, what's going when on? When we were younger, you know, youth culture was cutting edge. It was innovative. People <laughs> were making good points that needed to be made. But now, now I, I don't know. These younger folks, they, they're a little off. You know, also, They seem to have the wrong values, and they're pushing them too hard, and I don't care for it. I was telling Zeke I feel vindicated <laughs> because in like when we were graduating from college, they, that was when the millennial articles were starting to come out where they're like, millennials love avocado toast. Millennials aren't buying diamonds. Millennials, <laughs> like, what? What's their problem? This TV show made by a millennial is bad, yeah. and so I feel like this this article feels like it's the beginning of that for yeah, well, Gen look, the Z. good news. The good news for you is you have the revenge right in your hands, yeah. which is that twenty years from now, uh, seven month old Pepper will be uh, making the <laughs> rules. Right, Pepper? Yeah, Chuggy will be old news for her. Well, and everyone who's using that word. As, but I, I, want, I want to conclude our discussion of Chuggy with a quote from The Simpsons that I felt was relevant. Which is? Now, in which uh, the character Abe Simpson, at one point, says, I used to be with it. Then they changed what it was. Now, what I'm with isn't it. And what's it is strange and scary to me. It'll happen to you. All right, well, there you go. All right, so as uh, one does, uh, when we flew out here, Tamsin and I saw a movie, and strangely, they had one of the films that was prominent in this year's Oscar race, or at least one of the top films uh, in this strange year, and that was Promising Young Woman, uh, 
uh, which we got to see, hadn't seen. And uh, believe it or not, we had different takes on it. Uh, you, I think, were not altogether positive, Tamsin. No. Were you going to tell them about the movie? Yeah, the movie stars uh, Carrie Mulligan. Uh, she's a uh, young woman that's called 20s, early 30s, um, who uh, has had uh, experienced, a friend had a terrible experience. I don't want to give up too much of the movie, but basically taken advantage of by when she was in this sort of a drunken state by uh, a young man. And uh, she's been so affected by this, the Carrie Mulligan character, that she's sort of focused on almost nothing but uh, wreaking some kind of revenge on young men of this ilk who take advantage of women. Um, and it escalates from there, if you will. And you might call it uh, a psychological thriller. Uh, I don't know what you'd call it. But um, it is, uh, it can be a little, I don't know, what do you think? I thought it was hard to watch. Okay. It's, uh, I can understand that. It, it's a divisive film. There, Some people love it. Some people hate it. Uh, you should know that it's made by uh, Emerald Fennell. Emerald Fennell, we were talking about Killing Eve yesterday. Emerald Fennell was the showrunner of Killing Eve for the second season. So if you think about it, and that, by the way, not as good as the first season, but when you think about it, there's something that's reminiscent of that there because they're always playing with some kind of high-gloss, presentation on the one hand and even kind of comedy at the same time that things can get pretty violent and it's uh, an odd mix to sell and killing eve and it's a little bit of an odd mix here i happen to like the movie although i wouldn't have made the choices they made and i think i wouldn't have ended the way uh they ended and if you think about it the movie wasn't really terribly violent until the latter part of it um but i will say this uh carrie mulligan uh it's kind of a difficult part um you know um I, I don't know who should have won Best Actress, but I think it was a lot more interesting performance than uh, McDormand uh, in uh, Nomadland. So in any event, um, we differ on that. Uh, I, I liked it, or at least I thought it was interesting, and it caused me to think about it. But I can understand your reaction, Tamsin, which is not positive. Um, okay, there was an article about uh, something that floored me, at least, and I've asked uh, Tamsin and Noel to look into it which had to do with the chlorinating of chickens. Well, it mainly has to do with the British people don't want to buy American chicken. They don't. And what's a big deal because uh, there are a lot of chickens in the U.S. There's a big chicken industry. And um, and it has to do with uh, sanitizing chicken. Right. Well, they... Cadavers, yes. they call them. In the, um, in the article. Because, uh, I don't know if I can really articulate it, this as is, is well, but the, because they feel the chickens were not uh, raised in uh, a proper manner yeah, throughout their way. feeding and, you know, housing, et cetera, and yeah. so forth, um, rather than uh, be careful enough through all that, they just say, what the hell? And once it's all, once they're all being processed, then they try to sanitize them against any salmonella, et cetera issues uh, by uh, dunking them in chlorine or whatever. And, um, and the Brits don't go for that. The Brits do not go for this. Um, they say they should have, you know, better practices all the way through. Of course, the Americans say, you know, that's not even true. Yeah. It's a small fraction. Yeah, so the Americans are saying, and I, like, as I read more of this article, I kind of got, I 
started to agree with them a little bit more because it seems like the sort of thing, like, they're negotiating a trade deal right now with Brexit. And so what is happening is that they're kind of coming up with excuses of, like, now we're alone, now we, like, now we don't have the whole EU, we have to, like, figure out how to make sure that we don't have to compete with American poultry. They want to put... protect yeah their industries and this is actually interesting too when i I studied abroad in argentina um i remember somebody mentioning like they had an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in argentina in in the year 2000 the u.s then was like okay we're gonna limit imports from argentina because of this because of this and then by 2012 they still hadn't like lifted that bam on that because like why would the u.s has a strong beef industry want to compete with argentina who mm-hmm. has also a great beef industry, a country that's well-known for their, like, grass-fed beef. Um, so I think it's the sort of, like, I do think that, this, like, factory farming in the United States is probably, you know, it's not exactly the best practice, and it's probably not good for people. And they note in the article that one in six Americans gets a foodborne illness every year, and it's one in 60 in the, in the UK or in Europe. Okay, and... Yeah. Um, and so, it, like, there's probably definitely some truth to it, but I also think that this is the sort of... I don't think they actually care about the chickens or, or people's health. So you think, yeah, you think it's a pretext. Yeah. Well, there's a question of whether those issues come from uh, the the cleaning of the chicken using uh, materials like chlorine. Uh, since they cite also in the article a study in 2008 that found that that process was not harmful. Um, so it could be that there are foodborne illnesses that are prevalent in the U.S., the U.S. agriculture system, but that are not so much to do with chicken or perhaps not to do specifically with that practice in chicken preparation. Yeah, also, I don't think it has to do with that. They're right. hardly even using chlorine anymore. Chlorine is only 5% oh, really? uh, oh, I didn't in know that. the chickens. All right. It is a have some other chemicals. It's acid. It's some form of acid. <laughs> Look, I think it doesn't sound much better. It's not the chlorine, it's the idea that people would think chlorine is necessary. And I, uh, But that said, it does sound like it's a pretext. Uh, so I'm glad you guys all saw through that. So the, um, then there was an article that just threw me, and me, I, I'm not going to give the solution to this because I don't know the solution. Uh, Daniel Kaminsky, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Daniel Kaminsky's later. Oh, here's the article. New York man guilty of Chaos. threatening Democrats. Brendan Hunt. Brendan Hunt. From Queens. Yeah, whose father uh, is a judge, I believe, or mother is a judge. One of his parents is a judge. Uh, he's had a nice family, but it didn't work out for Brendan. He's kind of a case of arrested development. So what, what it is is a situation in which following the Capitol riot, we got to be clear about this, two days after the Capitol riot, Brendan Hunt, uh, this guy who lives in Queens, uh, posts uh, a video in which he uh, advocates uh, people um, killing congressmen, basically. I don't know, you know, a threat to kill members of Congress. Uh, and uh, turns out that's illegal. Turns out that's illegal. And so Zeke <laughs> says that with irony, as if like everyone should know it's illegal. But the truth is, my initial reaction is, why is that illegal? Because um, a lot of people say a lot of things, and it's all protected by the First Amendment. And there usually has to be some reality to it uh, in order for anyone to be prosecuted for that. And uh, that, in fact, turned out to be the issue in the case, or at least the prosecutors recognized that there had to be reality to it. A reasonable person must have regarded this as a threat. And uh, so there are two aspects of this. Uh, one is that um, the, uh, the way the prosecutors went about it, 
is they show the jury uh, what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, uh, which if I was in the courtroom, I would have said, what are you doing? Because uh, this is something he did on January 8th. What is what happened on January 6th have to do with it? And somehow they sold the judge on the notion, this was a trial, that that was relevant because it shows the reality of things, um, which I don't get. He's but, reacting to that event. It was a huge event. Yeah, he was reacting to it, but is it, how is that relevant to whether uh, a reasonable person... Because people were trying to kill congressmen, and after that happened, he said, hey, let's keep trying to kill congressmen. I understand. I so understand. when people in real life do storm the Capitol, yeah. and he says, good going, guys, if only you had finished the job, it very much seems right, like well, he is endorsing a real and present oh, threat. Oh, it, it, yes, it, but endorsing again is not a crime. So I'm sorry, let me be more clear. He is, he is advocating, he's advocating for that. Ad, ad, he, is, he is saying he would like to uh, no question. finish he, that job. No question. He, what he said is crazy. What he yeah. said is nuts. What he said is awful. And maybe even literally, if again, if one took it seriously and regarded it as a serious threat, it is a crime. And then the other part of the trial is you look at him. And he is, um, strangely, or not strangely, just what he is, is a case of arrested development. Um, and by his own words, basically. And, and it seems pretty convincing to me. He took the stand. He apologized for the posts. He said he didn't intend them to be serious threats. He described himself as a pretty immature 37-year-old. Wearing a gray suit, blue tie, and clear plastic face shield, he seemed relaxed, spoke nonchalantly. Quote, the idea that I would somehow borrow somebody's gun, waltz into Biden's inauguration ceremony like some Looney Tunes character, and execute people is a pretty ridiculous idea. Uh, apparently what had happened was the uh, police, when uh, they picked up the video, that was again January 8th, they immediately went to his place. 17 law enforcement officers, 17 law enforcement officers showed up at his home searching for bombs and weapons. Instead, they found a trove of comic books, toys, and a Ninja Turtle sweater. Ah, the Ninja Turtle sweater defense. <laughs> exactly. How could a man who appreciates this cherished relic of 1980s and 1990s right. pop culture possibly have material well, ill will for our leaders. The, the fact of the matter is, it's, it's, it's a bad situation. The guy's an idiot. And he later, you know, he said more than once. I'm not going to yeah. read it. Quote, the, he's an idiot. But the question is, is he really a threat? And, yeah. and uh, look, it just shows you more about the mood of the country, in my mind, than anything else. I yeah, mean, but uh, the, the folks on January 6th were not, uh, I don't know, elite commandos who had been yeah, living but, and training together for years, but, but, they were a lot of pretty but, messy people. But he, would, I don't know if you got saw the guy with the buffalo headdress. Yeah, I understand, but he uh, wasn't. But, but he that wasn't, guy, I think, might also have the equivalent of a Ninja Turtle sweater he wasn't there. in his apartment. He, this guy couldn't. He buy wanted it. to cut Nancy Pelosi open. Uh, so this no, guy no, no. is just saying, "Darn, I missed the party." Well, I don't know what so, he wanted to do, but the and fact that's against the law. The fact of the matter is that. Uh, this guy couldn't have got, bought a train ticket to get down to Washington, D.C., okay? It, it's a very different thing. He wasn't there on January 6th. He couldn't have gotten there on January 6th. He wouldn't have been there on January 6th, which is why I think they shouldn't have admitted the stuff on January 6th. So in any event, I just found that odd. I mean, uh, I, to me, I got to say it's the mood of the country. I just can't see it. Okay, so... Um, well, we may not have time to do this. But I was hoping that while we're out here in yeah. California, 
Uh, we could go to the Forest Lawn Museum. Yeah, that Forest Lawn. In a famous... big article yes, in the sir. New York Times a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Okay, Forest Lawn famous cemetery. Right. Actually, you know, famous all, cemetery. All the super Hollywood stars yeah. uh, buried there, etc. Um, but what's uh, there now that's interesting is an exhibition of stained glass yeah. uh, from a, the um, very famous uh, Judson uh, Studios that was founded in 1897 mm-hmm. by William Lee's uh, J- Judson. His story was interesting. Um, he was a painter. He was into all these other things. Um, his doctor tells him he's about to die. Yeah. Okay. And he should go to California for the California cure. In other words, he should, you know, he's going to go to California for his last few wonderful days. He lives another 30 years. And meanwhile, does things like uh, founding the uh, USC College of Fine Arts Mm -hmm. and starting this um, studio, which has done magnificent projects, including, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the big stained glass in... um, the Air Force Academy Chapel? No. Chapel. No, I haven't. Well, anyway, they've, uh, you know, obviously been uh, doing work uh, for over a century, and uh, it's magnificent stuff. And right now, in uh, the um, Forest Lawn Museum is an exhibition uh, commemorating their work and uh, their current work, which uh, pulls together uh, artists, um, um, street art, yeah. street artists. Uh, with contemporary uh, stained glass. It's really fun how stained glass uh, throughout different periods uh, kind of reignites and mm-hmm. is reinvented and comes alive. Uh, it, it does go through some stale periods. Also at this exhibition uh, is the Forest Lawn collection of you know pieces of stained glass uh, dating from like the 12th century through the 16th century. Where did all that come from? When? Where? Uh, they bought it from William Randolph Hearst. Oh, really? You know, who uh, collected a ton of uh, European mm-hmm. treasures. So that would be fun to go and uh, see these uh, modern... Um, you know, uh, my senior <coughs> thesis was on stained glass um, from the, uh, you know, uh, arts and crafts period in... Uh, uh, William Morris arts and crafts in um, uh, England during the 19th century, so I would love to see what's going on now. But we'll have to see. After a big, uh, it's reservations only, it's limited. And, of course, there was the big article in the Times. Well, in the Times, they have some pictures of those pieces, and they look really great. They look very dynamic, um, and uh, just the colors really pop. Uh, So that that would be, uh, I don't know anything about that. Until this article, didn't know anything about the Judson Studio, um, and uh, decided to learn more. All right. Well, next time, you know, and we'll see how this visit goes. We may be out here again. I don't know. Well, the exhibition is only through <laughs> if we're good. Um, if September. We're, if not, well, you know, it's it's, it's uh, only through September. That's a problem. I mean, I am. No one is picking this up, but we're passing Pepper around while we're doing this. Uh, so far, so good. Yet, there she is. <laughs> I mentioned her name. That was a big mistake. All right, Zeke, is it possible that you can talk about uh, Basecamp, or should I give you a break? Do you no, need... I can talk a little bit about Basecamp. Go ahead. Basecamp, it's productivity software. Uh, it's been around for a few years. Um, it's also an especially well-known company in the tech world, kind of. 
uh, I guess, with a bit of an outsized reputation, uh, part because its founders and the people in charge of it are some folks who are very opinionated about work, business, tech, yeah. how those things ought to be done. Uh, their views don't line up with everyone else's views, and they've been very vocal about that over the years. Uh, they've posted some stuff that I've found, you know, really great. I feel like they are, uh, you know, they've been really critical of, of bad work culture in the past and, and kind of bad ways to run companies. And I find that viewpoint refreshing in an industry where there are a lot of bad ideas about how to run companies. But recently, they've been getting into a little more trouble themselves. So there's a brief article about this in The Times. It doesn't quite give you the whole picture. Um I also read a couple articles in The Verge about this that provides you a little more background. Um, the, the quick background is that years ago, there were some employees at Basecamp when dealing with customer service, uh, thought it was funny some of the names of the people that they would encounter, and so they started keeping a list of the funny names. And this seemed like a kind of uh, goofy little pastime for a small company that was, I don't know, kind of new to the world of customer service. But the list was maintained, and over the years, it got pretty big, and a lot of people saw it. And eventually, people in the company started saying, you know, this actually isn't great. A lot of these names are funny, mainly if you say that foreign name is funny. It means to say, well, this is a perfectly normal name for this person. They just happen to, you know, not have grown up with your language. And so it seems a little tasteless to maintain this list. So this kind of started a, a conversation in the company about, you know, how they're going to handle these sorts of issues. The conversation kept going and going and bringing in more of the policies that the company has, more of the, the stances that they have and, and, you know, issues therein. And eventually the founders reached the point where they felt this is all too contentious. People are being too critical of the company within it. People are being uh, too intense about these conversations. They're too combative. And so we've just got to shut it down permanently. They announced a policy that there would be no more political or societal, that's their words for this, political or societal conversation at work mm -hmm. for this company, Basecamp. And this has been a pretty divisive stand to take. Uh, you know, they recognize that it would be divisive. So they said, look, if anyone's not okay with this at the company, if they didn't think that's where we were going to land, fine, you can get a generous severance package. Uh, leaving the company. If you've been here less than three years, you can get three months pay. If you've been here uh, more than three years, you can get six months pay and just, you know, leave, no questions asked, that's it. And uh, a third of the company took them up on that offer. So whenever you do something that a third of the company thinks is a bad idea, uh, that's a big choice on your part. Um, but some other people do agree with this stand. Uh, Coinbase was cited in the article as another tech company that took a similar stand recently. Uh, now allowing any political discussion within the company. So this is, it's an interesting topic because I think we're all familiar with, you know, the current media environment where there is a lot of really divisive, really intense, even painful uh, political discussion across all kinds of channels. So I think you can hardly blame someone who feels tired of that and feels like, you know, the times when they're engaging in that is not the productive parts of their day. But at the same time, I'm a little disappointed in what, the base camp leaders have done here because frankly i think they were happy to say controversial things get themselves involved in politics attach their political views to their company and what their company does up until someone at their company had different political views 
and then all of a sudden they got interested in neutrality. I think that is disingenuous, and I think it's not actually a great way to treat your employees. I think if you want well, to be a, a kind of politically active sort of uh, CEO and, and push for that in the world and think your company is a force for good and be very candid, uh, I think you can do that, but I think it's you should you know uh, expect similar behavior from your employees. I think it's a right. lousy double standard but to then say, well, when we're at work, you guys aren't allowed to but, talk. But here's the bit tougher question, though. I mean, it's easy if you, you know more about this and you made it an easier point than uh, otherwise it would be, mm-hmm. which is you're saying that they, the company had a political stance, if you will, and, and in fact, they uh, took a right turn when they saw that the uh, employees didn't all share that political view, that's the way what I'm hearing you. But to me, the more interesting question is, let's say you're running a company and you don't have a political stance, and you just say, you know something, uh, the idea of these political issues uh, being constant. The, constantly the source of comment and discord and whatever is something that is counterproductive. We don't see ourselves as a political organization. We just assume uh, leave, people leave politics at home. I mean, that's the much closer case. That's the much more interesting question. And that's actually the way the Times wrote it up. And I'll, I'll take your version of it as being right. But, I mean, if that's the case, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I think that's still a tricky one because I can definitely sympathize with not wanting to have any kind of acrimonious discussion among people at a company. I've, I've seen people at companies like just get really intense about political subjects and alienate each other and really harm right. the dynamic of a team because they feel strongly about something that's not really germane to the work. So I can appreciate how that's uh, it's a good idea to kind of guide the discussion in that way. But at the same time, it's really difficult actually to maintain a clear firewall between all matters political and, you know, uh, similarly societal, as as Basecamp said, uh, and what you do at work. Companies are, you know, important organizations, right? Like, if you're you're in any way, if if it's in any way a large company, if it's in any way an active company, if you have any impact on the world, uh, you know, your employees, I think, are right to have thoughts about that um and there are some situations where it's truly perplexing to try to figure out how you would definitely stay on the right side of such a policy one example i saw cited in uh, the verge article or one of one of the verge articles was um an employee who said well what about uh political matters related to child care family leave essentially family child rearing issues those are contentious political issues it's absolutely something that there's a, an important and intense political debate about. They can be really polarized. They can be really partisan. And that's super important for somebody working today, right? Like, how are, how are they going to take care of their kids while they're at work? How are they going to uh, pay for everything their kids needs based on what their work pays them? In the you know time, uh, in pandemic times, parents have been struggling to figure that stuff out. And it's been pretty important, both what companies do and what government leaders do. So it would put you in a pretty awkward situation, maybe even a scary situation as an employee, if you're saying, I don't know how to take care of my family and maintain this job and stay on the right side of this policy. And I want to talk to these people that I work with that I want to think I can trust. I want to talk to them about it, maybe express my concerns or try to get this problem fixed. But if I get perceived as being too political, then I'm persona non grata. Then maybe I can be, you know, yeah, well, fired, basically. Sometimes it's a trade-off you have to make. I mean, I don't know. Um, but it, look, uh, I think it's a tough issue to deal with. And I think uh, a lot of companies are having trouble dealing 
with uh, how much how political uh, they want to be, how much political discourse they want to see at the company. I was just surprised to see that anyone would take this extreme measure, not to say it's right or wrong. Uh, I'll be curious whether it actually is adopted by other companies. All right, in baseball, uh, just very quickly, something that Zeke didn't know, something that Tamsin has complained to me about bitterly, and that is that there's now such a thing as a seven-inning game, uh, which would be good for the Mets. Blasphemy. Because the Mets can do pretty well in seven innings. The nine-inning games that are a problem for them. Uh, seven innings uh, are played, if you have a doubleheader now, both games are seven. Pepper's against it. Yes, both, both games are seven innings instead. And to make things even more controversial, sure enough, uh, and I think Harry, uh, my friend Harry, predicted this. In the first two weeks of the season, a pitcher, Madison Bumgarner, pitched the game where he gave up no hits in seven innings. And the question was, is that a no-hitter? And uh, the answer is no. Under official rules of baseball, it has to be nine innings, notwithstanding that the game's only seven. So it's, it's a problem. It's a problem. But I thought you'd, be, you'd like to know, Zeke, that the people in baseball who run baseball feel that uh, they feel a way to appeal more to fans is to diminish their product, is to have fewer innings. They think if they just cut it down a little bit uh, and they had less baseball, they get more people to watch. I wouldn't even care if they just said all games are seven innings and we like that format. Maybe that could be the right call. But the idea that you're going to have a season that has some nine-inning games, some seven-inning games, yeah. that sounds bananas to me. Yeah, well, the Mets uh, right now are losing uh, after seven. Maybe they can win at the end of nine. We'll, we'll see what happens. All right, so the, the final – Yeah, I, look, I, I agree with you, Zeke. The, the final thing, there was an article that, again, Zeke, you know more technically than the rest of us, uh, an obituary. Daniel Kaminsky, 42, digital poll reviewer dies. fellow who was uh, credited in the article with uh, – taking critical security measures for the internet. Are you familiar with that at all? I'm not really that familiar with security issues on the internet in general. I don't, you know, I'm not in a great place to assess this guy's legacy uh, based on how it's described in the article. It sounds like he did something super duper important. Um, DNS is a system that is used when you're uh, navigating the internet and is uh, just critically important to pretty much every time you go to a web page. Um, so, it's used just constantly. Yeah. So the idea that there would be a critical security flaw in there and that someone could redirect you to a different site um, without you even, you know, entering the wrong text, right? Uh, that is disastrous, right? That would be a, a huge security flaw. Um, so him finding this and alerting the authorities so that it could be patched, uh, that's really saving the day. They also mentioned in the article that, you know, he dismissed the idea of trying to take advantage of that security flaw either instead of or before uh, reporting it to the authorities. Um, that he, seems like he, you know, he did the right thing there. He could have made some money. Yeah, yeah he, could have, he could have been quite the thief, um, but he wasn't, and that seems like a de the decent thing to do. Uh, also, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, also, uh, apparently he was courted by several large tech companies who thought this guy's incredible, he ought to be our chief security officer. And he would generally turn these folks down because he liked what he was doing. He was really great at it. Um, that was the kind of work he mm -hmm. felt like he should be doing. Yeah. Uh, they also had one uh, fun anecdote in this article, which is that uh, as a kid, he basically was Matthew Broderick in uh, War Games. <laughs> yeah, they mentioned that. And... Uh, 
that, which means what? I'm not. Well, he did, perhaps he didn't quite reach the brink of nuclear war, but as an 11 year old, he gained access to military systems. Oh God! And <laughs> was then in quite a lot of trouble as a result. Yeah. The uh, military got in touch with him and his mother and uh, said, look, if you mess around like this, we're going to cut off your internet access. And his mother said, look, if you cut off our internet access, I'm going to take an ad out in the paper that says anyone, even an 11 year old can hack into the Pentagon. That's what jokers these guys are. And to that, the military representative said, all right, all right, just ground him for a few days. So he had no internet uh, privileges for three days. But uh, yeah, he's been, he's been apparently, um, you know, finding major, major security flaws uh, pretty much his whole life. And that seems really impressive. And it seemed like he was, you know, doing really good work helping people out. They have this great quote where the... of his of a couple years ago he said the internet was designed to move pictures of cats we're very good at moving pictures of cats no one thought you'd be moving trillions of dollars on the internet so you know even better now those pictures of cats can be worth trillions of dollars (laughs) with nfts yes well that's true too jump in on the craze make all the money all right so uh that's sort of winds us up this has been uh sort of a uh raucous podcast between uh Pepper, Pepper has been action. opinionated today. And yes. uh, us being in California exposed to sunshine. And, uh, you know, thanks, Cap. You know, Tams are talking about Catherine, too. And that's sad. So there's a lot going on. But in any event, uh, we'll be back uh, next week on uh, the right coast. Uh, and, and thanks to uh, Pepper, Noel, and Zeke. Uh, until next week, this is Dan Abuha. And Tamsin Granger. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye.